talks to us on Totus to us. Carmelite Father Ian Matthew talks to us about prayer and St. Teresa of Jesus, St. Teresa of Avila. You know, last time we spoke about her, we followed her focus very directly on the, you might say, she wouldn't say this, but let's say the exercise of prayer in a quite a particular way of communion with the Gospel Jesus. A bit more widely that prayer as living out a friendship, being with the one who we know loves us, and that that was held in place by the Gospel for her, that uh, the scenes of the Gospel are not just past, but they are, uh, I think we spoke of how the Gospel is like a garden where one can enter to meet Christ. Now, the thing is, and as this human, humane, practical, real, realistic woman knows better than certainly I do, that exercise of prayer, or whatever one's direct experience of prayer may be, is not in isolation. It's held in place by one's life, it's threatened by one's life, it's highly dependent on the horizon under which it lives. And part of the uh, contribution of the mystics in the church is to retrace the, the, the horizons under which our relationship with God blossoms. A little bit like that, different from the, 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 the coasting, cruising, everything's going well, but rather those, those kinds of happiness genuine happiness when maybe the heaviness is lifted. First of all, it's dramatically evident and also rather ironic that Teresa, uh, her project of prayer, of communities of prayer, of gathering a few women together, not that 180 that were sprawling across the common incarnation in Avila, but a few so they can be committed and together and serious about this. The reason for that was so that they can embrace the world. Prayer, she'll say, is for them. It's not for you. That it's not just a private experience. Well, it's not even a private experience, but it's certainly not a private project. It's the most embracing, all-embracing undertaking that humanity is capable of. Now, we mentioned the way of perfection, and it's on that that we're going to concentrate just now. The way of perfection, as you imagine, is like a triangle. And remember that this was written in response to her sisters in San Jose. So we've got Teresa saying high world in 1515 and she said cheerio in 1582 and in 1562 she made her first foundation well her only foundation let's say is in her mind then of San Jose in Avila 13 women coming together for a life of prayer and community prior to that from 1536, she was in the convent of the Incarnation in Avila, which was this massive, a lot of good people, she says, but it was just 
too, too much of a monster to be able to survive spiritually that huge place. Anyway, she was there for those years, 1536 to 1562. And within those, we spoke of 1554 as what she speaks of as her conversion. So, I mean, her whole life is a conversion, but she marks this particular point where she says, I stopped putting trust in myself and put it all in him. And from that point, 1554, her experience of mystical prayer, that is to say, gifted prayer, where it wasn't, it wasn't felt to be her doing, it was realised to be his doing, that's where things really took off. Prior to that, we've got these years of what she calls years of battle and conflict, relating to God and to the world. So just to recap on that, she's born in 1515 to a wealthy family but with plenty of tragedy and she's 21 or so, she enters the community but she lives a, some ways dissipated, restless, difficult life certainly not a life where her heart was one or in a sense where her heart was fully open. So we've got the story of her struggle and her conversion which finally explodes into light in 1554 and we've got then those eight years of intense mystical experience and a, a growing sense that this has to go somewhere. So she makes the foundation against immense opposition in 1562. Five years later in 67, she starts those last 14, 15 years of her life where she's going around Spain making many foundations. First of those in 1567 was in Medina del Campo and the last was in Burgos. Yeah. Yeah, um, he came in in 1568 into her life and the way of perfection is written in this period. She calls these the happiest years of her life when she was in San Jose in extreme poverty a life that was extreme in real poverty, a life that was very focused and very sisterly, very committed, and it was during that time both that she completed the book of her life and that she wrote the way of perfection for the sisters who said to her, so what about us, what do we have to do to pray? Now, here it is, the way of perfection, and as I say, it's answering, it's meant to be, about prayer, about how to pray. And in fact, the last, it's uh, 40 or so chapters, and from chapter 26 onwards, it is very much about prayer. In fact, it's a, a reflection on the Lord's Prayer. And prior to that, from chapter 16 onwards, it's about aspects of the experience of prayer, like what happens if the person next to you seems to be deeply contemplative, and I've been churning away at this for 48 years, and I'm still, still not got beyond the Our Father, and, uh, and you know what's that about? And she's got an answer for that, which is full of grace. So we might say that from chapter 16 onwards, it is, it is her answer to their question about how do I pray or what's prayer about. But before that, she says from chapter 4 onwards, you remember her saying that prayer is relationship. 
It's about a relationship with the one who knows us. Now, if it was just a, a technique or an exercise, then you could write a book just about that. But if it's about a relationship, then it implicates your life. And so she, she starts this, quest, this chapter here saying, in order to pray, what kind of people do we have to be? So, relating in prayer comes out of being. And in those chapters, and we'll see that a bit later on, she answers that question, what kind of people uh, do we have to be? But all of that, from chapter 4 onwards, rests on this little triangle at the bottom. And it does rest on it, because she says, in payment of what I'm going to write, I'd ask you to read these first three chapters, to, to, to go over this again and again. I'm going to embark on quite an undertaking, writing about prayer, and first writing about virtue, let's say. But in payment of me doing this, I want you to take very seriously what I've just said. And what she's just said in these three chapters is that, well, it's this. My sisters in Christ, help me to beg this of the Lord, for that is why he has brought us together here. The world is on fire. No, my sisters, this is no time to be dealing with God about matters of small importance. So, what all this rests on is her, her sense of mission. That prayer is a mission for the world, for society, for people. And if we're called to a life of prayer, it's for people. That doesn't mean that necessarily I've got to be thinking all the time about those people I want to be blessed or saying prayers of intercession, though you know, it can well be that, and Teresa did plenty of that. But that very relationship of love with God, of experiencing a loving God, being with the one who we know loves us, that very relationship is holding up the world. Now, when Teresa um, talks about the world being on fire, she's got some particular things in mind. Partly maybe stirred up by, maybe by propaganda, like the news that filtered through to Castilian Spain, but she, the mystic, she goes much deeper than the propaganda. Anyhow, the fire that she was concerned about was the fire of the the division of Christianity in the 16th century, which she suffered intensely. The fact that the seamless robe had been ripped. And it was in fact in response to that, to news of that, that she founded San Jose, that first community, the way she did. She says that she intended, I hadn't intended to found this, this monastery in such poverty. But the reason I did was on hearing news of the rupture in the church and a longing to be able to do something. And so her response was this. This is at the beginning of the way of perfection. As my longing was and still is, that as he has so many enemies and so few friends, these last should be good ones, 
Now, Teresa's language is it's um, Hispanic, it's 16th century, it's fired up. Um, it may not be our language, but we or our disposition. You know, obviously, we don't have to embrace the entirety of her mode of discourse. But what I do want to embrace here is her sense of the reality of human need that she's called to respond to. So that these two friends should be good ones. So I determined, this is very instructive now, I determined, faced by this impossible task, I determined to do the little that was in me. So in her case, to follow her vocation as well as she could and try to see that these few women should do the same in her community. Putting my trust in the great goodness of God who never fails to help those who set themselves to leave all for him. So right at the beginning of her enterprise there's a purpose of working to heal the church. Impossible task. But it's, that's not a reason for doing nothing. It's a reason for doing the little, trusting in the great goodness of God who can do the rest. Now, the book of the Foundations begins, 1567. What was the impetus behind her doing that? Because she didn't intend to be a foundress. All she wanted to do was, was have time for doing a bit of spinning and earn some money for this poor monastery and to pray like she'd come out of it. However many years, years it was being too busy. She didn't want to be more busy. Anyway, what spurred her on to that was a Franciscan friar came back from what was known as the Indies, so Latin America, and he talked to the sisters in San Jose about the situation of thousands of native Indians who did not know Jesus. Now she puts it a bit more virulently than that, but that's the heart of the matter. And she, again, faced by this impossibility, a continent of people who don't know Christ. Faced by that, she wept on her own, and begged God to enable her to do something about it. Coincidentally, just after that, the superior of the Carmelites showed up and encouraged her to start making other foundations. And so this work as a foundress, it was a response to an apostolic need. Not that she would go off to Latin America, but rather that she would found other communities because she was so convinced that these communities of prayer were making a difference. So saying that, to re-emphasize the fact that this doctor of prayer, this great mystic, her entire enterprise is apostolic. It's for them. Just got a quote from... Pope Paul VI here, in 1970, when Teresa was named a doctor of the church, and he said this, The clock of providence has sounded Teresa's hour. 
She has taught us to walk the principal path of prayer and a life shared with God. All other paths are merely traps which are useful only insofar as they lead back to the principal path. The Holy Spirit wants us to return to this main path, that is to prayer, to union with God, to an inner life. That is the lesson from St. Teresa, Doctor of the Church. Well, what we're finding now is that that lesson, that principal path, is for the world. As I say, Teresa is a woman of her age, and in some ways, the church was quite territorial. Uh, that you could mark a frontier up to which the church was and beyond which the church wasn't. And heresy was fairly kind of luminously drawn in that frontier. Nonetheless, evidently, it goes, it goes deeper than that. Before her foundation of San Jose, in 1552, it said that this was a period of mystical experience and experience of joy, of giftedness, of grace. But there was one experience just before San Jose was founded, and in fact, which was the final kind of impetus to, to care about people, which was anything but light filled. She describes it in, I think it's chapter 32 of the Life. And it's an experience of hell. And when she shares that, she speaks of the kind of imagery that's used is that of narrowness, constriction, suffocation, might say, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and self-digestion. We're talking about horizons, it's the absolute opposite of a wide horizon. And she says that that was a great grace, that was terrifying. It was a great grace because, for one thing, it helped her to appreciate God's mercy, but also it intensified her desire to be of service to people. St. John of the Cross says that People don't know how to rejoice rightly or to grieve rightly because they don't know the distance between goodness and evil. I think that kind of goodness is here and badness is here. And the mystics experience that goodness is there and evil is there. And it's a huge panorama. And it was Teresa's experience of that distance that fired her up to want to serve people. So, you know, if we're talking about what is a support to prayer, for her, the great support to prayer would be a sense of mission, a sense of responsibility for the world. And this is kind of the second context of prayer. If the first one was that sense of mission, that sense of the, the need of society, the need of the world, the need maybe of, of this particular person or that group of people or 
one's sense of well it's like Jesus isn't it who his ministry it began by being baptised into his people's sin anyhow the second horizon the second horizon of what was in her uh, mission is the resurrection the resurrection of Jesus facing into the plight of the Indians facing into the division in the church facing into the journey of prayer uh, first facing into her own history would be a short trip to despair if it weren't for the horizon of love under which her message unfolds if it weren't for the resurrection of Christ the resurrection of Christ being precisely the fact that love is as strong as death that love is stronger than death that his love for us is stronger than our death and Teresa's life was a prolonged experience of, of that grace of that anticipating love that moved in before she got there so on the sheet we've got some quotations that express that and the first one is systematic of her but is the best of her and in it she is part of um, chapters in the life where she is describing prayer as that which will get you out of any hole that you may be in why? because Christ is at work when we're at Christ so she says let them recall his words and let them look at what he did with me so this is based on the truth of scripture which has been realised in the fact of her life let them recall his words and let them look at what he did with me I first grew weary of offending him before he left off forgiving me he never grows weary of giving and his mercies can never be exhausted let us not grow weary of receiving may he be blessed forever Amen and let all things praise him now two weeks ago the question came what about forgiveness in Teresa and at the time I took that as, as what about the virtue of our forgiving people who offend us and she does have something to say about that and if we can stop the clock we will actually get to that this evening but more characteristic of her is her faith in her reliance on her experience of God's forgiveness of her that her life is it's a litany of sin but she writes that because it's a litany of mercy one could get the wrong end of the stick here in reading Teresa's description of her own sinfulness one could think as some I know one book that does have this take on her a little bit that she's a guilt-ridden woman she's not a guilt-ridden woman she's a forgiveness-ridden woman and she's kind of talking about that stuff because she's so vivid in her experience of having been rescued embraced 
set free undeservedly and you know this is testimony he never grows weary of giving I first, isn't that beautiful I first grew weary of offending me then I was sitting away giving it my best and now really poor and sooner or later he got a bit of outstripping but no, I first grew weary of offending you before he left off forgiving me he never grows weary of giving and his mercies can never be exhausted now, let us not grow weary of, of receiving that open heart. Let's read a bit more. This one is from the mansions. Now, we had a way back uh, a reference to learned men. It was at the introduction to the way of perfection, wasn't it? Where she was saying that learned men, for whom she has the greatest of respect, and uh, up to a point, she was saying how learned men, you know, they, they have their they have their tones and they have their work and uh, uh, they, they can miss out on the odd details so let's, in this homely atmosphere sisters, let's uh, get to work on that of course she was the teacher of many, many uh, so-called learned men now for her, a learned man and I suppose it would be a learned man because we're talking here about uh, priest directors and for her, a learned one of them she says, this is surprising, is one who knows the truth of Scripture and who is aware that God is capable of more, much more. So she say, good directors never doubt God's deeds of power. They have come to understand quite clearly that he is capable of much, much more. I have the greatest experience of this. As I do too, of partner-learned men who are hesitant here. They cost me very dearly. As I do too of half-learned men. So she speaks about half-learned men. And in the, the story of her, her own life, she grew kind of slack, dissipated, wound up with work, or at least other things. She grew kind of maybe proud, disinclined, lazy, tired, self-indulgent, restless, sinful, negative and lacking in courage. She drew all of that because, partly because uh, the message that she was getting was it's okay to be half-baked. God understands. That's only an ideal. Well, that's an ideal, but you know, we, don't need to, we don't need to take this that seriously. And people who said that to her were people who didn't believe that God could change your life. And it was when she met people who did believe that God could change her life that her life took off. So that's where that's coming from. They never doubt God's deeds of power. They've come to understand that he's capable of much, much more. I have the greatest experience of this. As I do of half-learned men who are hesitant here, they cost me very dearly. The next quote is from the light, and just to say a word about the light, it comprises three blocks. The first block, which is the first nine chapters, is about her struggle in her life. The last block, which is the last kind of 
20 chapters, is about the joy in her life, her years of victory. And in between is a treatise, like a, a mini sort of treatise, on prayer. And it's kind of saying, writ large, that what got me from this struggle to this joy was this, prayer. And it's a massive testament that prayer is where God, or in prayer, God will change your life. And so she begins this part, chapter 23, saying, from here on, it's a new book, or I should say, a new life. Up to this treatment of prayer, it's been mine. From here, it's been God living in me, so far as I can see. So I suppose that that would be a definition for her of what prayer does. It enables God to live in you. Anyhow, at the beginning of this treatise on prayer, that's where, that's where this rotation comes from, from chapters 10 and 13 of the life. It's interesting what she kicks off with. Seeing the way we are, it's impossible, in my view, to have courage for great things if we do not realise that we are the object of God's loving, active attention. Have great trust. It is very important not to cramp your desires. Put your faith in God, trusting that if we make the effort, then little by little, maybe not at once, we shall be able to reach what many saints have attained through his favour. That's from the beginning of chapter 10. Then in chapter 13, His Majesty is a friend of souls with souls. It's an intensive translation of animosity. His Majesty is a friend of souls with souls. So long as they walk humbly and without putting their trust in themselves. I find that a wonderful overture to her treatise on prayer, that her encouraging us to trust God, to do great things, to believe in the resurrection. And the, the final quote is from The Way of Perfection. So this is chapter 27, and it's the beginning of her hardcore meditation on the Our Father. And these words are her beginning to comment on our Father, Parthenostas. And the reason I put up this on the sheet was I mean, typical of Teresa's language here. Uh, as you know, for those of you that are familiar with her, and it's typical of her, her hope, her, that this is, this writing is a two-way affair, that, well, a three-way affair, because she's very confidential. She has us in her confidence. But it, it's also, it's two-way in the sense that the door to heaven is wide open and heaven is very interesting. Well, what I've got here, uh, I, I read it as this testimony to the risen Christ, to just how involved he is in your life, in our life, in our prayer. So, here goes. The word, our Father. Son of God, my Lord, 
How can you give us so much in this first word? I should comment there that we may have noticed this uh, last time we spoke about St. Teresa, that when she starts off these chapters, chapter 26 in fact, she says, so we're going to pray the Our Father. And what we need to do is to look for a companion. And who better than the good Jesus who taught us this prayer? So when she's praying our Father, when she's praying to the Father, Jesus is beside her with his arm round her shoulder, kind of directing her, directing her heart to the Father. And maybe kind of whispering, Our Father, who art in heaven. So it goes on. So it's Jesus who's whispering those words to her. And that's why she begins by addressing Jesus. Son of God, my Lord, how can you give us so much in this first word? Being Father, He has to bear with us. If we turn to Him, He has to forgive us. He has to comfort us in our struggles. He has to sustain us as the Father He is, being so much better than fathers on earth. How extraordinary is your love for us. Your great desire to bless us means that nothing can stop you showing us such immense kindness. Blessed be you forever, my Lord, so anxious to give that nothing can keep you from giving. Now get this sentence and thinking again of Jesus beside her, her looking to the Father, maybe kind of sleeping through half of it, but here indeed is a reason to take heart. However muddled our heads may be, between such a son and such a father, there cannot but be the Holy Spirit. So, when she invites us to pray, something very cosmic is going on, something very Trinitarian is going on, that when we pray to the Father, we find somebody with his arm round our shoulder, whispering into our ear, and the atmosphere that fills the between is the Holy Spirit, because if it's Jesus speaking to the Father, the Holy Spirit has to be in there. And that's the resurrection. The resurrection is the Holy Spirit embracing the Son in the love of the Father. So if we're talking about horizons under which our prayer life will blossom, the first horizon is that of mission for the world, and it is that because the, the prior horizon is that of grace. And what mystical experience is doing is declaring that grace. But Teresa said, going back to, you know, it's all I can do is pray the Our Father. Uh, she said that there was a woman that she knew who was, had been praying for 20, 20 years and came to her saying, look, Mother, all I can do is just kind of pray the Our Father and all this mystical stuff, I don't know. And Teresa says, I realised that she was in perfect contemplation. The last one is Teresian determination. And there's a background to that. There's a background to the whole way of perfection. And in fact, it'll, it'll say something about the other virtues that are there. 16th century Spain was, the first half of it, um, was very vital. Like there was a lot of vitality, spiritual vitality. There, were, there was a whole load of new, new teaching and old texts coming in. Uh, for example, the Rhineland mystics, the imitation of Christ, and a lot of that was 
was, was received by uh, particularly Franciscans friars early in the century and um, there was a whole blossoming of new spiritual literature. One of the works that helped Teresa a lot was by Francisco de Asuna, uh, Franciscan called the Third Spiritual Alphabet, for example. And then in the middle of the century, inquisitional nervousness about the incursion of Protestantism led to, well, there were two options. One was to dialogue, the other was to try and keep it out. And it was very much the second option that was adopted. So in 1559, there was issued the Index of Forbidden Books, and as well as there being out of the faith kind of official burnings of, of heretics in um, Sevilla and Valladolid. There's something else that happened in 59 which has escaped my head, but anyway, it was at that time that Teresa, who was who was very devoted to reading and got a great deal of help from reading. She was very upset that most of her books, most of the books by saints also, that uh, many by saints, that had to be put on the bonfire. And it was then that she experienced the Lord saying to her, don't let this cause you pain, uh, I will be for you a living book. Anyhow, part of that inquisitional nervousness, I mean, in, in many ways, or in some ways, the Inquisition was, you know, doesn't deserve the kind of bad press entirely that it gets. Uh, in, well, Europe anyway, that kind of stuff went on anyway. And in some ways they were quite popular because, with the, with the common man and woman, because there were um, powers that would crush the poor and let the wealthy go free, maybe, you know, at a price, whereas the Inquisition was horrible to everybody, and so um, <laughs> there was a sense of, of rough justice there. But anyhow, there was, there was a nervousness, which, which did begin at the beginning of the, of the century, about what could not be contained, what could not be controlled. And to some extent, there was, there was some reason for this, because there were some, some weird, you know, new age, really new age stuff that was coming in and that was, that was ending up in immoral, immoral living under the guise of religion, you know, weird stuff. So, what you can't pin down is suspect. And that led to personal prayer, mental prayer being suspect. There's one uh, writer, I'm not sure if he was an inquisitor, saying that mental prayer, complaining that mental prayer is being taught to ordinary women like carpenters' wives. He specified, you know, so wonderful, so wonderfully ironic, particularly because he was singing the Magnificat of a very uh, important carpenter's wife of the evening. <laughs> and Teresa, um, so she. Her response to the need of the world could have been much more mechanical. Uh, indeed, in the Convent of the Incarnation, the prayer there was very mechanical. And Teresa could have founded a community to do that. But 
To have done that would have been a complete betrayal of the God she knew, who was the one who was loving her first and calling her into relationship. And that's where the final quotation comes from. When she's talking about determination, the final thing that her sisters had to be determined about was believing that a personal relationship in prayer with the living Christ was for them. Now for us, we might need determination about believing that the whole thing could possibly be real anyway. Or determination about believing that prayer is more important than checking my emails for the fifth time tonight. Or believing that prayer is for me, despite my sinfulness. It is very important to have a great, a very determined determination. It's very important to have a very determined determination not to stop till they reach the living water. Come what may, whatever should happen, whatever struggles they have to go through, whoever complains about them, even should the world collapse, as often seems to be the case when they say to us, there's danger here. So and so went astray that way. That person was deceived. That one used to pray a lot, and down she went. It harms virtue. It's not for women. They do better to keep to their spinning. There's no need to be so exotic. So that's a virtue that she sees as determinative, as the word, for the living prayer fruitful is the Venezuelans have a great word guarana, which is kind of guts um, John Wayne in the film True Grit when he was about 40 years as, as, as this cowboy and uh, he was being pestered by this young woman who wanted him to help her rescue his dad and so John Wayne left her behind and kind of rode across the, rode across the river and left her behind. And then he saw her getting on his horse, her horse and riding across the river too. And he said to his companion, you know who she reminds me of? Me. <laughs> so what Teresa wants is true grit. She also wants true freedom. He thinks that freedom is what kind of people do we have to be? And she says we have to be loving, free, and humble. So I've just picked out three quotations there from these chapters of the Way of Perfection that give us a little taster of what that way of being is. I'm going to preface it by saying this. For prayer to blossom, be free, be detached, be, don't be, don't be self-indulgent. Be loving. Don't be an egotist. Be humble. Don't think you're the greatest thing in the world. For prayer to blossom. Her message in the life is don't wait to get your life together. Don't wait to be loving, detached and humble before you start praying. Enter into that relationship now and see where he takes you. 
So, love of our brothers and sisters, this isn't people-pleasing or being hostage to our likes and dislikes, but loving without self-seeking. And she notes that people who love like that, do you think that such people will not love anyone but God? People who are, let's say, detached. Sounds a bit cold, doesn't it? She says, they will love people much more than others do, and with a love that is more genuine, more feeling, a love that really does the other person good. In short, there really is love. So, Dad, I want to watch the telly, not do my homework. All right, son, I love you. Or, no, do your homework. So she used to be saying that the second is a much more passionate way of loving. Secondly, detachment. This means not so much a no to what attracts us, as a yes to the centre of all our lives. Well, she says, you will say no if you've got a bigger yes. So, it's not so much a no to what attracts us, as a yes to the centre of all our lives. With determination, the person embraces the good Jesus, our Lord. Since she finds everything there, she forgets everything. And thirdly and finally, humility, which, so I put it last, is the main one, then includes them all. God save us by his passion from saying, or even thinking, that he's holding on to the thought, but I'm senior, but I'm older, but I've worked harder, but they're treating her better. If you hold on to these thoughts or start talking in this way, it's a plain So to conclude, Teresa there, she's been laying out a horizon. It's about prayer, but it's also about life. Right? It is life. So we're saying there that she's encouraging us to live for them, to have that sense of mission, vocation, that Jesus is the one who is sent, and we are the ones who are sent. Secondly, and mainly, that the horizon, the one who sends, is the risen Christ. And it's the anticipating power of his love that colours everything. And thirdly, if it's about relationship, and if it's about mission, and not just about an exercise, then if it's, I really want it to hum, and for it to hum, then uh, I've got to I've got to bring my life or let my life be brought in tune. And so determination and love and freedom and humility. So let's just spend a minute praying for the gifts that we feel that we most need for our relationship with God to, to flourish. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Teresa.